Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we are happy to be with you wherever that you are, probably in your garage, wrenching on something, I hope. That would be the ideal uh, option to listen to the podcast at this point, I think. Social distancing by yourself in the garage. Yeah, which is pretty much what I do all the time anyway, so not not that much has changed for me. I'm on the podcast today, Alex Nelson, who you guys all know is a very good friend of mine. Um, He's working on some crazy stuff. He's working on some crazy stuff. We're going to talk about uh, why he does what he does, try and get a little bit behind the behind the mind there a little bit he's uh on his filmmaking uh his content uh producing and he's you know he's the founder of airworks which is the company that he uses for his turbo fans and shift knobs and some of the other stuff that he's going to be making and i know there's a lot of new stuff coming down that i can't talk about Ooh. that alex is coming up with his uh, his new active arrow setup that he's going to be putting on his m coupe <laughs> so, so cool. we're going to talk creative engineering and of course turbo fans all that stuff We've got some product updates, uh, a couple news stories that I think are worth reviewing. Fetter's going to call in for one of them. Um, but before we get to the project updates, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's talk about our sponsor, Omaze. Omaze is a fundraising platform that offers once-in-a-lifetime experiences, including, of course, dream-worthy cars. So far, they've raised over $130 million for charities around the world. And if there's ever a time for giving to a good cause, now is it. Now is when you can really make a difference. And you can also enter to give a brand new Porsche Taycan Turbo. And I've ridden in one of these things. They are phenomenal. These things are rocket ships. If that was enough, Omaze is even throwing in 20 grand cash that you can spend any way you like. And they'll even fly you out to LA to receive the keys from factory Porsche driver, Patrick Dempsey himself, Dr. McDreamy. Chris, know you're a fan. I know you're a big fan. Never seen the show. The best part is that every donation supports a good cause. In this case, you'll be helping cancer patients through the Dempsey Center. They're committed to making life better for people, managing the impact of cancer, the caregivers, and family members of all ages. Head over to omaze.com slash overcrest to check it out. And with a donation of $10, you're entered to win. Like I say, it's uh, it's important to get involved with charity right now. It's something that everybody should be doing if you have the means is help people out in some venue in some way. Absolutely. So, so Chris, you have uh, you lowered the Mercedes even more. What do you mean even more? Oh, I did. With 300 pounds of racks on. <laughs> yeah, that's all I had to do. I got it totally <laughs> dialed in. It's it's all set. Yeah, I had to go pick up some water softener salt. I haven't actually done the mechanical work that needs to be done. But with 300 pounds of water softener it's, salt, it's, perfect. It, it's absolutely <laughs> perfect. Um, so I took the car uh, to, I got all the wheels on now too. Yeah. Rather than just one. Very I'm good. Very, you, know, you could do the math, figure out what, you know, your inch pound per force rate springs you have, and then do 300 pounds we know exactly where we need to be so you do that times the inch and that you can figure out how much of that coil to take out half a coil is three quarters of an inch i've talked to people that have cut these springs before so i don't need to do any of that oh, although that on. sounds It'd be cool. much more fun yeah no i'm gonna just have to pass okay. on that although i did make a really stupid mistake okay so to get the springs i had to so i reseated <laughs> the springs i'm like okay they're not seated right in the rear control arm you know they have to be seated in the proper spot because it I'll, has basically like it's shaped like a coil in there yeah it's, it's got a little channel that yep, it sits exactly in. so it was not sitting in the right spot so i redid the driver's side to uh -huh. see how much it would lower it was not enough but what i forgot to do uh -huh. is put the nut back on the top of the strut oh no 
So I drove all the way to uh, GameStop to take my contactless delivery of a game controller that I bought uh, yesterday. And when I left the parking lot, I kind of turned. It's like this incline thing. And I turned. And of course, the uh, the the left, the driver's side wheel came out <gasps> of the of the of the the car. <laughs> and I'm looking at it and I'm going, oh my God. So I heard it, it was rubbing. I'm like, okay. So I pull over, I look, I'm like, sure enough, the strut had come out and it was like yeah, shoved just, in, shoved into the chassis of the car and it gouged the inside oh, of the no. inner wall, which I don't care. I'll just spray some more undercoating over it. Not a big deal. <laughs> but now I'm thinking, okay, I have to fix this. It's 20, 20 minute drive home. I can't yeah. drive home like this. No. Although I did attempt, it did not work. It, it's, <laughs> I drove another block. I'm like, I can't, do, I can't do this. Something's going to break. It's just not a good idea. <laughs> so I get out of the car. I go, okay, I got to get to my jack. Uh-huh. And what do I have to do? <laughs> Move 300 pounds 300 of rocks out. So I had to take the oh 300 pounds of the rocks out, <laughs> set it on the side of the road where I was parked. All this water softened herself, <laughs> sitting there. Get out the jack, jack it up. Uh-huh. Crank, it's the one that goes into the thing, and you crank yep. it, which is actually quite nice. You yep. crank it. It's not hard. Jacked it all the way up, started like pulling down on this strut, Uh-oh. and it falls off the jack. <gasps> and you've never seen my arms get out of somewhere faster than oh. when that car, when that car started to lean. It didn't all the way fall off, but it started to like yep. lean forward. I'm like, whoa! I pulled my arms out of there. Just I mean, oh faster goodness. than a teenage boy and his girlfriend. Just whoa! He just pulled out immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so I got my arms out of there, and uh-huh. I'm like, okay. So then I went and I found something to put the the jack on. Uh huh. So I went and grabbed the license plate off yeah, the car. That's a good one. I put, uh, okay. So you actually took the license plate off the car? No, I have the uh, the. I don't have a front plate on it. I oh. just grabbed the the not used front plate off the car off the car gotcha. and put it in the on the ground because it was on gravel. Yep. So then I jacked the car up again, and okay, I'm like, I don't really want to stick my arms in there again. That was really scary. Yeah. You, Even though fuel would, me once, car shame on you. Well, with, without all the 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 water softener salt on there, my arms probably would have been fine. But I it just, wouldn't have felt good. I it, there's enough gap that I I probably would have been stuck. But with it, a strut in there, maybe. But this, you have no idea how that suspension is going to collapse. Higher because of well, true. I mean, the lowest point it would be is in the spot where its home is. Right. Okay. I suppose. Anywhere else, it's higher. But yeah. I still was just like, oh my god, I really just <laughs> like my brain is like, I do not want my arms to be caught in between the fender and the wheel. So I basically what I did is got my feet up, stood on the strut. Or on the tire uh-huh. and started kind of like bouncing up and down because I tried to compress the strut, which I couldn't really reach to get my uh-huh. hands on it. So I jacked it up as high as it would go, got up, stood on the wheel, jumped once and then shoved it in and then <laughs> and then hopped off and got off. And I, and then, and that worked. And then, of course, I went and back so it, there. It went right back it went, into it back, went back where it was supposed to go. But then I went and put the nut back on the top. Did you like, have the nut with you? Yeah, it was in the trunk where I put it. When oh, I took course. it off. Well, there yeah. you go. Where else do you put it? <laughs> So thank goodness it was still there. But that was, you know, none of that, that got shared ordeal. on your Instagram story. No. Well, I had to save the story for you because I didn't want you to hear it twice. Now everybody <laughs> gets to know how stupid I am, which is like, like I, uh, I was I, today. I was on the Cars Yeah podcast. That'll be yep. coming out on May 1st for everybody that wants to listen to it. But I want to he had me write a little bit of a bio. So okay. I was like, oh, yeah, photographer, writer, prolific mistake maker. It was <laughs> was like, uh, that, that's me. I, I make like all that. kinds, yeah, all kinds I of like mistakes. Um, I got more welding on the 9-11 done. OK, so all I have left to do is fix the um, the pan where I had to split the pan right for the gap. And then there's a little spot on the other side that I need to fix as well. Otherwise I, th- so 
and your washer bottle mount. I did find that. There I did find go. the washer bottle mount. I'm just waiting for you to measure, like you said you were going to do and then did not do. Well, you didn't remind me either. <laughs> so I've been talking to some people, and epoxy primer is the way to go with okay. this. It's, it's kind of the factory way to do it. Okay. Um, I'm not going to spray it. I'm going to brush it on, Ooh. which means I need to uh, wire wheel off all the all the self-etching primer that I put on. Really? And just, I'm gonna, I just want to do it right. I want to do it right. I don't want – I'm just going to do it right. Okay, so mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna get all the etching primer off of there, and I'm gonna get some epoxy primer, which is what it's supposed to be. Okay, from uh, from Logan, he's actually the guy that called in on the RX7 back in the day when we were talking sure. about you know best '90s cars, right? Yep. Uh, so we're gonna just put the epoxy primer on there, and then I'll be able to put the shoots on. I'm gonna do black shoots. The factory would have done gray shoots yep. with paint over it. They would have brushed on black paint. Sure, is the way they would have done it, and then some color if if uh, some of the cars I got had some color on them too, I think. But I'm gonna just do black shoots. Yeah. So I don't want to have to brush on more paint. Yeah, I think so. This will be. And th- so then I'm going to use the gray that I have. I'm going to do the gas tank. Sure. So I'm okay. going to redo the whole gas tank and yep. and, and and do that. Uh, but that's kind of where I'm at on car projects. Clean the garage, which was a huge. Mora- that's an undertaking. Huge morale sure. boost. Uh, huge morale boost. Yep. And I've been working on my BMX, which was which yeah, is cool. Yeah. What brought this about? Your old BMX bike. What brought this about is my daughter can now actually fully ride a bike. Okay. And I had to ride Jesse's like stupid bike around, <laughs> and I was like, this is not cool. Like the it's got like 60s a bell. beach cruiser. Look. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, it's yeah. got like a ding 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 yep. ding, awesome. and it's got struts on the front for you know. I don't know why old you man mean mode. For, for old man mode of being on the sidewalk. And yeah. just, I have no idea. I'm like, I can never be seen on this thing again. So I started taking my well, BMX. Well, luckily, bike. now with coronavirus, you can just wear a mask everywhere. You could, or I could just wear a bag over my head, which would be even better because yep. no one would be able to see me riding that thing. Um, so I started looking into fixing the wheels. And the wheels are the, really the big thing that are kind of holding me back from doing it because they were super rusty and pitted. Okay. So I bought some oxalic acid. I saw this. And it's theoretically supposed to work really, really well. So basically what I do is I submerged the wheels Uh or the rims in the acylic acid solution, which is probably, I guess it was probably half a cup for, uh, I don't know, 18 gallons. It's a powder you put in water. Yeah, it's a powder. It dissolves. And I did it in a Tupperware tin, which I think those are, what, 18 gallons? I don't know. Something like that? I have no idea. Anyway, I let it sit for six hours, went out and checked on it. It was doing a good job. Came back in the morning. All the rust is gone. So is the wheel. Uh, no, no yeah. yes, I, I just the, the, the water was just very cloudy. That's all that, that was all that was left. No, it was uh, I took a little toothbrush and I started kind of yeah. scrubbing off. All the rust is gone, but the wheels are just too far gone. So anywhere oh. that there's rust, rust is metal that gets converted over to rust. Obviously, to iron oxide. To iron oxide. Chris, that's so correct. of course, um, when you remove the rust, you're removing material. So there's pitting. So there was a lot of pitting. The spokes weren't in great shape, but I, I really, I think it would work really, really great on car pieces. Sure, if because you had that's any something chrome. you can refinish it then. Yeah. So I don't know if you had anything for your truck, uh, your dad's truck that you guys are building together. Any no, chrome? No, we want it to look rusty. Chris. Oh, that's right. But I, I really like nice chrome on like a on old, a patina. On a patina. This truck. thing didn't have any chrome on it, really. Oh, okay. Well, I just, if anybody's wondering, oxalic acid worked really, really well for Sounds removing good. the rust. Yeah. It's just. It took a very long time. I had it in the solution for probably 18 hours yeah. before I saw the results that I wanted. So it's not something where like, yeah, let's polish this up. Oh, there we go. We're all set. <laughs> Scotch my pad with, you know, with uh, people have all kinds of different ideas oh, of yeah. things that they can use for this. But oxalic acid worked really great. Do not get it on your hands. It smells horrible and it does not wash off. Oh, it just smells bad. Yeah. I thought my, you were going to say it burns. 
Uh, it can irritate a little bit, uh-huh. but unless you stick your hand in there for 18 hours, you're probably going to be fine. Good to I saw that you were working on your car. I took it out today, actually. It's here? No. Oh. Okay. I just took it around the block and went to Jimmy John's, and I did some leisurely driving, which is allowed, Chris. On your new wheels. Yeah, new wheels. I got my bumpers mounted up after painting those. Those my look bumpers. good. Yeah. Well, I yeah, I, and then I kind of repaired them sure. and got them to fit perfectly. I'm very happy with the fitment and they're orange, which is good. Are they tangerine though? They're orange, which <laughs> is good. <laughs> no, I brought I even brought in uh the gas cap that's painted to have it paint matched and yep. this is a custom mixed paint because I've ordered tangerine before and that was too red and then so I was like, all right, I'm doing it right. I'm going to match to this faded paint and it came back way too yellow. Okay. And I, of course, I didn't notice that until I got it on the car, and it's just... It doesn't match quite right. It's not quite right, My but thought is, is that it's, a, it's, You know what? That car the, the, is the, not The gas perfect. cap or the gas lid is curved. Uh-huh. So sure. my thought is, is that they didn't get a good seal oh, so with the camera. leaked in? Some light leaked in, or they didn't get a good... Because uh, you want it to be flat, right? Sure. When the, then the camera shines on the thing. You know, when I took my... I had my deck lid painted on my 911 a long time ago, back to okay. black. So my car was all black. Right. And when they scanned it, the color came up. They're like, yeah, dude, this car is Black Magic Pearl. No kidding? Yeah, someone painted my car Black Magic Volkswagen Pearl. Volkswagen Black Magic Pearl. Matched perfectly. You know, like off the R32 or yeah, like a GLI or something. Yeah, that's my car was, was yeah. Black Magic Pearl. That's also what car, color my 911 was, apparently. Oh, I like was, that was color Was Black Magic Pearl. There's a lot of pearl in that car, and that's something yeah. that most people don't realize. All right, so I want to get a couple news stories in before Alex comes on. Sure. Um, but before we get there, what have you got for us? That's right. we got to take a minute to mention our awesome sponsor, Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly subscription service specifically made for the automotive enthusiast. What's even more great is they have a price point for any car enthusiast. Each box contains premium pieces of apparel, tools, detailing products from top brands and the hottest newcomers that are defining car culture. So you can log on to mypetrolbox.com, use code OVERCRASH at checkout to get $6 off your first month, and they still give away a set of rotiform wheels to one lucky subscriber each and every month, which I think is awesome. So there is a new Cannonball record. Yeah, this is crazy. On Sunday, a white 2019 Audi A8 broke the Cannonball run cross-country record with a journey from New York to Los Angeles in 26 hours and 38 minutes. Motor Authority confirmed. So speaking of Motor Authority, I'm like, well, we know someone there. We know someone there. Uh, Mr. Joel Fetter wrote this article. Let's have him on and see what he knows about this story. Hello? Mr. Joel Fetter. And I'm Joel Fetter. (laughs) (laughs) How's it going, buddy? I just am on my way to pick up my kids for my... They, we had passed over city at parents' house. They're the only ones we see, and they take the kids usually about a day a week. To it's good for my parents' health and probably my kids, frankly. So I'm on my way to my parents' house to get my kids. Because what are you driving in the world? I'm driving a Le- uh, Lexus RCF for 89 grand, bright yellow, if I recall. I here. I, I don't know if you can. Ooh, I don't know that sounds can. pretty good. Yeah. Is that being piped yeah, in through the speakers, engine. or is it actually the actual engine? It's a little piped in, but it's mostly the engine. It sounds so good. It is a great sounding little lag. Uh, it is. Great. So why don't you go? <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, geez. why don't you just keep doing that and see how long it takes you to get across the country with your foot on the pedal? Well, the problem is it's really not fuel efficient. 
Well, from what I saw, all you have to do is put a bunch of gas tanks in the trunk. Uh, two. Uh, it looks like they're mar- they actually look like they're marine tanks. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what we're talking about? So there's a new cannibal sure. record that got set, which is there is there's some questionable ethics that have to go, to go along with this. But tell us what's going on. There are questionable ethics. I mean, look, driving doing the cannonball is an illegal thing. No, you can't drive across country in a hundred plus and and call anything legal, right? And there are a lot of rules when it comes to doing the cannonball run. Alex Roy did this, right? And he he did it for 32 hours and four minutes. And he had a spotter plane and he had uh, army binoculars, night vision, all this stuff, right? This is this is not a normal drive across the country. And Ed Bullion did it and he didn't have half that crap, but he had laser jammers and all this stuff. This is un, unlawful stuff. Someone did the run Saturday to Sunday. And they ended up at like 11 something at night in California. And it was in 26 hours and some minutes, under 27 hours. And what was the record that they beat? What was it before that? It was 27 and something set in December. Okay. They beat it by about 45 minutes to an hour ish. Um, and, but the guys did it in December. Actually, everyone to date, Rory, Rory was the most prepared. Alex Rory spent years researching his, and he did multiple attempts. Okay. The guys that did it next, Ed Bolian, he just slapped a bunch of money into a car. It was basically a rolling bomb, but he had jammers and he had all that stuff and he did it. The guys that did it in December, they spent time, not like Roy, but they spent considerable time researching and planning it. The guys that did it this weekend, they didn't do any of that. In fact, they didn't have laser jammers as far as I know. They, did, they may have had a radar touch, but they didn't have laser jammers. All they, all they seemingly did as far as modifications is two fuel tanks in the trunk and they blacked out part of the LED taillights because the aid's got a full strip across the back that's pretty damn bright at night. Sure. Um, and that's it. That's all they did. So when you look and at what Alex's kind of, Alex Roy's philosophy is that there's no such thing as an accident, right? If if he's prepared enough that everything that happens to a car and while you're in it is should be under your control. And it seems like things are starting to... Um, kind of pursue on the reckless angle and i'm not sure do you think it's un i would agree with do you that. think it's unethical that um someone's attempting to do it with uh with all the coronavirus stuff going on or does it really matter i mean the only places they're stopping are gas stations um here's the deal i mean i talked to alex Roy about this so i know he feels um which this isn't about him it's about uh, you're asking me i wrote it as straight news factual news facts are facts and that's all there is um, my personal Joel Feder non-motor authority opinion, it probably, it, it's hard because on one hand, none of this is legal. Driving hundred miles an hour across the United States is not legal, whether it's the coronavirus or not, right? It's illegal and it's dangerous. At the same time, um, what they did during the time they did it, on one hand, you can argue it's safer because there's less people on the road, right? At the other hand, you can argue it's more dangerous because of the fact that twofold. One, the only people that are on the road, for the most part, are first responders, emergency people, truckers taking N95 masks and supplies and toilet paper across the United States, and medical employees. So if you run into something, that's real bad news. And second, the other fact is, is that if these guys get in an accident, if these guys get hurt, if something bad goes down, now you have to call first responders and you have to take them away from whatever they're supposed to be doing right now that's far more important than your attempt to do this. So there, there, there's two, there's two angles to this. Um, 
I kind of do. You know, they, I agree with you, but I kind of do also like the the post apocalypse type feel that it has of you know driving across well, the country me, with no it's cars. Like, I, it seems like he's cheating because there's no cars in the road right now. There's less police presence. You know, yeah, but are the, they ever going to be able to beat this now? Because these were basically ideal circumstances to do this. So I, 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 I they had not released all their data, right? They haven't released the full spread uh, to anyone. Uh, Ed Bolian seems to be the person that's seen the most of it. Um, Alex Roy knows about it, uh, I believe. And uh, the reality is, is that theoretically, you could, you could argue it would be the ideal circumstances. At the same time, I don't know where they went and how fast they went. I don't know the route they took. I don't know well, how they took the Well, out to about 105 miles per hour, I think, doesn't it? I math it to 106, but it all averages out because you know it all varies a little based on the route they took. But I math it to about 106. Wow. That is that's wild, man. That is wild. It's moving. I mean, Alex, Alex's, Alex's average was something like 96 and change, if I remember correctly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but Alex Roy had a lot more defensive gear, right? These guys didn't have night vision, any of that stuff. I don't think so. Um, well, it's it's clear I, that Alex <laughs> was the best prepared for all of this. I just hope it doesn't devolve into. You know the wild wild west. What well, I mean, that is the wild wild west. It, it a, a little bit. It if is you, the wild. If you look at the it's film, always been the wild west. If you look at the the film that Alex Roy put out that that documented all this, yep. which is well worth the watch. All of those those guys that did it back in the day, they didn't have night vision cameras. They didn't have you know any of that stuff. I mean, they just went and did. No, no, no. But they, but they, but they did. If you if you watch that, they have they have CB radios. They had available technology that they used. And you might argue at night, but in the daytime, the spotter plane is doing you a whole lot more in the night vision and you're doing more, you know what I mean? So it depends on what time you leave and all that right. stuff. Um, and, 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 and don't, don't be fooled by, by you use the best available tech to you if you're smart. And those guys that were doing it before Roy, I mean, sure, you can argue it's dangerous, but dude, they had money and they were, they were, they were, they were equipped. This A8, I don't think had a spotter plane. Right. This A8, from what I understand, they had a photo guy, and they and Mike. I, I don't want to speculate. I have a feeling. I, I I only know the facts of what I know. True. True. All right, man. Well, I'm sure you're about to your destination. I just wanted to hear what you thought on that, and I appreciate you calling in. Always happy to be here, boys. You take care of yourself. Talk to you, bye. 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 All right. Many thanks to Joel for calling in. I have a ba- some bad news for you, What's and that? I really hope that we don't have to chase this down and start grabbing some people's ties and tying them around their neck to make this go away. <laughs> what? Ford, in uh-huh. my opinion, can go straight to hell. Okay. Ford Motor Company would like the U.S. government to sponsor an automotive stimulus program to help the industry get back on its feet after the coronavirus crisis abates. Quote, we think some level of stimulus somewhere on the other side of this would help not only the auto industry and our dealers, which are a huge part of our overall economy, but will help the customers as well. We're in discussions about what would be most appropriate. And what they're talking about here is something akin to cash for clunkers. Right. Cash for clunkers was very effective at that time, they said. It would be nice to think we could have something equally as effective for 2020 when we get out of this because it's such a great program. You don't. This goes when I was. You don't ruin things. Right. Okay. You don't just because you want something new. You don't destroy something. Exactly. I don't like the concept of this at all. What was it that I said? What is the most economically friendly car that you can drive? That's not what this is about. 
No, I know. But the answer is the car you're already driving. Well, yeah, it's, it's so wasteful to not only buy a new car and destroy this, but it's just it, you can't use the parts then. They crush them. It's so bad. In the, the effects of fiscal stimulus, evidence from the 2009 Cash for Clunkers program, working paper number 1635, uh, 16351 co-authors Atif Main and Amir Sufi find that in 957 U.S. cities, the surge in automobile automobile sales was short-lived while the program was in place. About 360,000 automobile purchases were induced in July and August of 2009. Most of these purchase simp- purchases simply were brought forward by a few months. Hmm. So basically, people that were thinking about buying a car just like, bought one a little bit earlier. Right. A sharp decline in sales after the program, and it suggested that it had a muted total effect on auto purchases. The authors conclude. Edmunds.com reported that the cash for clunkers cost U.S. taxpayers $24,000 per vehicle sold, that nearly 690,000 vehicles were sold, and that only 125,000 of vehicle sales were incremental. Edmunds CEO wow. concluded that without cash for clunkers, auto sales would have been even better. <laughs> So do you know what they actually did to these cars? This is why it's wasteful. You mentioned junkyards and not being able to get parts, everything else. Right. To ensure that vehicles traded in under cash for clunkers will not be resold by dealers, the program outlines a procedure for destructively disabling the engine Mm -hmm. and thus also precluding the possibility that any mechanical engine components might be salvaged to be used in the repair of any other vehicles. God forbid. Yeah. God forbid that I decide that I want to keep my... Fill in the blank. My clunker, my rusty toilet, my F-150. Here's the other God forbid that I want to keep it, but to keep it running, I need to get that part from the junkyard because Mm -hmm. I'm not a wasteable MF'er, right? I just want to keep going what I've got. God forbid I do that. So here's what they do. The motor oil is drained and replaced with sodium silicate solution. Then the engine is started and run until the solution, becoming glass-like when heated, causes the engine internals to abrade and ultimately seize. In addition, the salvage or scrap facility, which acquires the vehicle, cannot sell the engine, cylinder heads, or a rolling chassis from the scrap vehicle. The salvage or scrap facility can sell other components, including transmission axles, from the scrap vehicle separately and may dismantle and warehouse those parts. The hull of the vehicle must be crushed within 180 days. Cut off or unbolted front end assemblies may be saved and sold at a later date, as well as the top and back of pickup caps. The outline procedure says that running the engine at 2,000 RPM should, quote, should disable the engine within a few minutes. If not, then allow the engine to cool off before repeating the procedure. Hazards associated with the intentional overheating and destruction of the engine include rupturing radiator and hot water and steam, motor oil ejection, toxic fumes, and fire. This sounds like torture. (laughs) It is, literally. Here's the other problem. They're assuming that, oh, this is just getting all the old, rusty, inefficient cars off of the road. Do you remember they came out with a list of some of the best cars? Yeah, there was like a Typhoon on there, some Taurus SHOs. There was some Maserati by Turbos. Lord save them. (laughs) You know, I mean, there was some cool cars. Most of the cars that got crushed were Dodge Caravans, F-150s. But even so... It's incredibly wasteful. The, the, yes. the cost to ta- uh, the cost to taxpayers of cash for clunkers was three billion dollars. Wow, three billion dollars. So this is something to definitely keep an eye on. Um, you might want to start calling your representatives about it. Make sure that they know if this moves farther along, we're going to be all over it. If this is a bill that comes and it starts getting written and Ford starts to push forward on this, I'm going to be all over it. Yeah. I'm going to be the biggest proponent of this opponent. You're not a proponent. You're an opponent. My foot is going to be on the neck of this statute. If this is ever something that I'm going to be the boot 
there's no question about it. This is some bad shit. I hate this. It's so wasteful. And it's, they don't need anything. No. Obviously, this sucks for everyone. Right. I just, I don't like it. It's wasteful. It's, it's, it's bad form. Agreed. To to say the least. All right. Before we get to uh, Alex, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's take a quick word about our sponsor, Worth USA. Worth is a family-owned global company that's been in operation since 1945. They offer high-quality, professional-grade shop supplies and tools with the industry-leading customer service. They also have their line of world-class hand tools, Zebra line. These are German-made tools with a lifetime warranty. Head over to worthusa.com to check them out, all of their awesome products. All right, let's get on the horn with Alex. Alex Nelson. Man, it's 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 my pleasure to have you on the podcast, but of course also to call you my friend. And yeah. I was thinking back to when we first met and we were in that parking lot and I saw you, I don't know if you were taking pictures or shooting video or what okay. it is you were doing, but I just, I remember seeing you do things with the camera. I was like, oh, I got to go talk to this guy. And you had the, you know, you had your white uh, M3 and I'm, I feel so lucky that I walked over you to you that day and started talking to you yeah. to, to make a lifelong friend. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Yeah, that was, uh, I remember, I think that was Euroworks, maybe, or it was a get to, no, it was a get together, and I had my M3, uh, it was on air, maybe not, anyways, yeah, that was, uh, I'm super happy we got to meet, actually, a lot of the reason we met is because my wheels were destroyed in shipping at the time, because I had some rotiforms that I was like, oh my god, how do I rectify this? That's right, I reached and, out, uh, and it, it wasn't rotiforms' fault, it was the company that boxed the wheels, they basically sent them in a paper mache box, it seemed like. Right, <laughs> yep. The wheel pinatas. <laughs> yeah, wheel pinatas. Oh my God, they it. were flat on four sides. That was bad. <laughs> <laughs> so we get it. I want to talk to you about turbofans and kind of all the projects that you're working on. Um, but we've had you on the podcast yeah. a couple of times. And one thing I haven't done is kind of um, dig into Alex a little bit. So I want to try and, and do that. Okay. Um, and, but when most people think of you and I, they think of Dazeel. And looking right. back, how has that film impacted your life? Um, looking back, the biggest thing about Dossiel is definitely the audience that it reached. And when I say that, I don't mean um, car guys. Uh, it's really difficult for someone my age, uh, and especially, you know, how young I was at the time that we made that film. It's really difficult to, to have older generations and guys more experienced than me who, um, you know, who have a lot more money and a lot more to do with their cars. It's really difficult to get them to understand who I am and what I'm trying to bring to the community and what I'm trying to do. Um, so that film really allowed me to reach those people, um, and kind of get them to say, Hey, like, you know, this kid who's trying really hard to, you know, I I don't go to parties. I don't play that many video games. Like I just, I live this. And, uh, it, it was kind of a film and a means by which, um, that I could talk to, you know, older generations and be like, Hey, I'm here. I'm trying to do cool stuff. Listen to me. Um, and I think they listen. So that's definitely the most important part about Dust Deal for me. It's just the audience. What was your immediate thought when I mentioned another journey, but this time, instead of 3,000 miles, it's 9,000 miles from Mexico to the Arctic? Honestly, like the the whole Dust Deal trip was, it wasn't off the cuff, but like not having been to California and not having traveled with you before. I mean, it was like the first time we ever really really hung out it was legitimately so other than wednesday night get-togethers at Euroworks, it was, really, it. it was it right i mean i remember did. chris you said something to the effect that well after this we're either going to be best friends or terrible mortal <laughs> enemies that's true yeah. yeah and like that whole trip 
was definitely uh, was definitely pretty off the cuff for me. And when you talked about doing another journey, I was like, okay, well, we'll just do off the cuff from the southern tip of America to the north tip of America, <laughs> and uh, and and roll with it again. And there's a lot of little things that I think um, you know I could, I could work on before we even start the trip, just so I'm more prepared. But like, uh, yeah, that's. As soon as you said that, I just started thinking about, okay, well, I'm going to bring my camera and I'm going to bring the drone and we're just going to wing it. And it's going to be awesome. Um, I didn't really worry about any of the specifics. I didn't want to get caught up in how much it was going to cost. It's just, yes, let's just do it, you know? And uh, we'll take the roll cage out, maybe. Oh, my God. <laughs> trying to fit a gimbal into a 911 with a roll cage. Yeah, I remember, I remember when I showed up to your house. And I was like, man, I'm so glad I told him to take the roll cage out so I can fit all this stuff in the car. And uh, and then you're like, yeah, so I just put the roll cage in the car. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, just just, <laughs> just, just help me put it in, and she's not going to help me take the roll cage back out. I'm it's, like, it's all right, true. well, this will be fine. <laughs> and then it wasn't really fine. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was tough. So do you consider yourself a more of a right brain guy and a left brain guy? And I wouldn't necessarily ask this question of everybody, but I think it's an important question to ask you. Right. Uh, I've been asked that question a decent amount of times, and I kind of take that question as like a looking glass self opportunity to see what I'm doing and putting out into the world. But uh, I I guess I like to tell people that I'm kind of more focused on joining the two together. Um, I forget what it's called. Is it the corpus callosum, I think, in the brain is what joins the right and left halves? Unless you're I try to focus. <laughs> right. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. But uh, I guess I, I kind of focus on joining my right brain and my left brain together. I've always been someone who's really messy and creative. Um, my mom is a single portrait artist mom. So she's, you know, taught me to get messy and do whatever you want. But at the same time, I know that I have to discipline all of that with um, having to make parts that aren't going to fail or having to design something that's actually manufacturable. You know, there's a lot of people who have great ideas, but they have no means to translate those ideas into um, a pattern that, someone could take and actually make on a machine. So engineering, I guess, has kind of tamed um, my creative side, my right brain, but not in a bad way. It's more given my right brain um, the tools that it needs to be able to speak to the world. So I guess that's, it doesn't really answer your question if I'm right or left brain, but I guess I started out right brain and slowly I'm kind of joining the two together. <laughs> um, Which part do you value most for yourself? Um probably my left brain at this point, just because, uh, being able to, you know, run my own business and make calls on buying machines and stuff like that kind of on a different level than many of the people I'm surrounded with is definitely something that I wouldn't be able to do if I was, you know, solely right brained. Um, I like being able to play with machines. So that's pretty much uh, left brain time. So throughout the time of knowing you, the person that comes up most, well, there's two people, your mom, of course, and yep. your grandfather. And it seems like you took a lot of inspiration from him. Who was he and yeah. what kind of person was he and what did he do? So my grandfather was a uh, kind of half inventor, half um, videographer, filmmaker. Uh, he was the first employee of KSDP, which I think is Channel 5 News in Minnesota. But um, to speak more internationally, um, he is invited into the Hall of Fame's Hall of Fame at NFL Films. Um, he's also been the director of photography for the 1990 Olympic Festival. Um, he's designed crazy stuff like uh, like I have in my living room. I have a helmet with a film camera mounted on one side with this massive metal bracket, and the right side of the helmet there's a like five pound lead weight that's a ballast 
for the film camera, for a 16 millimeter film camera, and then wires running out of the helmet that would go to a power supply on an Indy car. So that way you could get on car or on track footage from the, you know, it's basically the first GoPro. Um, He also did some crazy stuff like he built a wooden tray that had three different cameras mounted on it. And he figured out how to sync up all of the um, shutters on every camera. And then he would trigger all of them to film at the same time. And then he'd play it back on a wooden board that had three projectors set up and basically tried to make what was the first IMAX. Funny enough, he actually ended up filming for IMAX later on um, for like football documentaries and stuff like that. There's photos of him carrying giant IMAX IMAX cameras. But um, growing up, I didn't really have a father figure in my life at all. Um, I basically got what I could from him and he was always busy, but I ended up being a caretaker and uh, for him when he was, you know, getting really on an age and he would always just try to teach me stuff like, Hey, this is how, you know, you operate a film camera. This is how you wire a circuit. Um, and because of the skills that he just gave me and the discipline that he had to like, you know, no, you're not going to go watch TV today. We're going to go build like a go-kart or something like that. You know, that, that discipline is, I guess what, started the motto in me, which is never be bored. Like I just, I, I've never allowed it allowed to be bored ever. If I'm bored, that's because I'm just not learning anything. So I always have to go learn. And it's kind of a burden to like always think that way, but he definitely gave me a lot of that. And so did my mom, but uh, he's the one who taught me that you can really just go love what you do every day and, you know, occasionally make money off of it if you want, but he's a pretty brilliant guy. His name's Levi Skip Nelson. And you can see um, some, pieces that he's donated to the Pavic Museum of Broadcasting in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. So do you feel any pressure that you need to live up to him when you're doing your when you're doing your film work or anything like that? Do you think about him a lot when we're working together and stuff? I actually don't, um, partially because he was kind of a different person than I am and that he was a little bit more, um, I guess, Passionate isn't the right word, but he w- he was much more dedicated to photography and videography than um, than I am. But it's, I look at it more as a respect for what he would have done with today's equipment. So, like, um, someone just asked me on um, social media, they were like, "Hey, why are you spending?" 10, 12 hours learning how to like render your car in CAD. And I was like, because I feel absolutely obliged to, given what previous generations like my grandfather would have killed for to have, you know, this software. Um, and, and being able to carry a 4k camera in your pocket, it's like, I, every time I, um, you know, pick up a camera or I film with you or especially on Dossiel, I was always thinking like, man, if Skip were here, there's no way he would let that shot of the stars going by go without being shot. Like there, there's no way he wouldn't, you know, address that. Even if it sucked, he would still try. Um, so I don't really try to live up to what he did, but I certainly try to think about what he would do in a lot of situations. So what do you get out of filming? What, what do you like most about it? Um, actually that's a, I've never even thought about that question. That's, that's, wild that I don't have an immediate answer for it. I guess um, the biggest thing for me is that a lot of people go by in life without having captured anything that they're doing. Um, You can take selfies like all you want, but um, the world going by you and the cultural anchors that surround you, one of which for us being cars, um, a lot of that goes undocumented. And uh, to be able to take video and pictures of trips like uh, we do or whatever I'm working on, uh, the meaning for that or the meaning... um, 
for myself is just having captured something that I'll be able to look back on. Uh, that was kind of always my grandfather's motto too, is, uh, he would capture like just everyday things that the family would do. And my grandmother always kind of got fed up with him when he was like, okay, smile over here. Now walk across the park and jump and I'll take a picture and we'll do it five times. And he would do that kind of stuff. And it was always annoying for the family. But then, you know, looking back on the photos in his old age, he was so thankful that he captured all those moments. And that's what it really all means for me. So that's awesome. I, I completely agree. Tell us about what you're up to at Airworks. What is Airworks? So Airworks is a company that I started, um, let's see, three years ago now. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> and it mainly focuses on um, just custom parts that I make, specifically turbofans um, is how it kind of got its name. Also, it focuses on other parts. Now we're doing shift knobs, and soon enough I'll be doing um, aero parts like brake duct systems um, and various other components for the exterior of cars. What do you, how are you making this stuff? Uh, a lot of it's 3D printed uh, using... CAD models that I get from 3D scanning cars um, and then developing those 3D scans. So what kind of printing are you doing? So a a majority of the prints um, have been done in FDM, which is fused deposition modeling. So that's classic, you know, hot glue gun on the end of a stepper motor. But uh, that was uh, something that I really got a lot of experience with when I used to work for 3D Printing Ally in Eden Prairie. Um, They actually work out of the old 70s Stratasys building, uh, which is where the first FDM printer was developed. Um, But I used to work on those machines a lot and make ergonomic um, accessories for Stratasys machines. And that kind of opened my eyes to like, wow, you can just, you can design something and print it, but uh, there's kind of this art to printing that a lot of people don't understand. There's a lot of shapes and, and you know, things that you want to make that aren't going to turn out on a printer. So, Do you have an example of something that you've done that failed? Like you're talking about, like you had yeah, this concept so the, and it didn't work? One of the biggest things is turbofans because turbofans are huge and they have to be one piece of plastic. Well, if you make something 3D printed that's 20 inches in diameter... It's great when it's 500 degrees coming out of the nozzle, but as soon as it cools, the whole thing shrinks by, you know, say, uh, half a millimeter. And that half a millimeter causes it to warp or pop off the print bed prematurely, and that causes a huge headache. So, I actually, uh, I should include photos for you guys to post, but there's a, there's a photo of my kitchen in my apartment in college um, early years with, uh, like, this huge seven-foot-tall box that housed two giant printers in it, and it was insulated on the inside with Tyvek, and uh, that was all just to keep the heat in so that the print, so that the turbo fans could finish printing before warping. Um, that was like such a struggle, and now that I've gotten over that and done other trick things like cutting the bed into quadrants to make it all expand and contract, um, that's been kind of like a huge step in the right direction for making printing more feasible um, and something that otherwise wouldn't be printable. I, I, there's a lot of people online who are like, yeah, just give me the CAD file and I'll print those turbo fans for you for 25 bucks. It's only $20 in material. But at the end of the day, it's like a hundred hours of figuring out how am I going to make this? You know, how am I going to design this so that it can be printed? Like there's, there's in the, if you ever find a set of my older turbo fans on a car, there's a few people still running them. Um, but they all have like relief cut into the back of the fin so that when it expands and contracts while printing, it doesn't warp. Um, and all that stuff is, you know, takes time to figure out. So why turbofans in the first place? What was, what was uh, just something you just love the way they look or? Yeah, I think there's this 
really interesting. Um, I always had this curiosity where I, I love how race cars look, and I think it's super cool that they have liveries and, and decals all over them and stuff like that, but the wheels were always untouched. Wheels have always been, you know, the, the cavity in the livery. And I thought Terrible Fans were so cool in that they, and this was, you know, thinking back to when I was a little kid and I didn't think about making any of this stuff yet. I always thought it was so cool how the livery or the color of the car continued onto the turbo fan. And it was almost like this, it was the car becoming homogeneous again. It wasn't the car on wheels. It was really tying in the wheels with the, with the car. Um, and that kind of stuck with me for a long time. And it always just kept turbo fans on my radar. Uh, and eventually I started, you know, seeing new people, come into the scene with this turbo fan designs and stuff like that. And I was like, you know, I could probably make some for my car. And ever since I put the uh, BMW Zukunft uh, Tyla livery on my turbo fans and then put the actual, you know, livery with the turbo fans on the car, uh, I think that spoke to a lot of people. And, and when that got big, it was like, okay, well, this is what I should probably do. Um, and it's kind of took off since then. So what is a, what is a turbo fan? What do they do? Because they're not, I mean, they're not uh, just for looks, obviously. Right. They, so the tur- the history of the turbo fan kind of starts with the Porsche 935. And it was uh, like Group 5 racing and IMSA racing, stuff like that. Engineers were trying to figure out how can we, you know, aid gravity in sucking this car to the road. Um, and people figured out that if you put crazy air dams and crazy wings on stuff, it was more effective than uh, than not. And soon enough, engineers were looking at the wheels going, okay, well... A wheel with a tire is a giant high-pressure area. How can we evacuate air out from underneath the car and the wheel well? And how can we move this hot air from the brakes you know, out from the car? We can get it into the wheel well with a brake duct system, but getting it out of the wheel well is a big. Um, and so turbofans started popping up, and the first company to do it was BBS on the 935, those huge staggered you know, uh, spun aluminum or fiberglass turbofans. Unfortunately, a lot of those got you know, thrown in the trash, but, uh, but some are still preserved and they're super expensive, but that's kind of how it started is just trying to figure out how can we get more air around this car? Um, they pretty much work like a spin dryer. Uh, you have all of the air sitting inside the veins and when the veins start turning, uh, the centrifugal, the centrifugal force forces the air out to the edges of the, um, turbo fan. And then it sucks the hot air from the brake into the center of the turbo fan and out the edge of the wheel. Um, then you kind of started seeing them move into the aftermarket. So companies like BBS realized that, you know, race cars look like race cars. Therefore my homologation car or my, uh, sports car has to look like that race car in every way. That's why, you know, splitters exist and huge whale tails exist for nine or nine eleven and stuff like that. Um, and turbo fans just kind of followed suit. So BBS actually released their own official, turbo fans for RSs at the time. Um, this was like early eighties. And, and I love the fact that it's called a fucking turbo fan. Cause that's like the <laughs> most seventies things that they could have ever named it. They could have named it like AeroDisc, like Rotoform did, but like no turbo fan. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty um, good. I remember Alex, we actually talked to some of the designers at BBS back in the day that worked on the 935 and that stuff. And they referred to them as cooling cones as well, which is up there <laughs> with cool oh names God. as well. That's amazing. I know BMW called blowers on the original E thirty five, E thirty four, five blowers. That's awful. Cone, Although, is that the cone. first production car that had turbofans on it? Is it the first and only? 
it is not the only. I believe it was one of the first. The other one was a C4 Corvette. Um, a lot of people don't know that salad shooters actually have fins behind the, uh, like the, the salad shooter shape, shape that curved blade is uh, it actually has a fin behind it. So they are designed as turbofan wheels. Well, those work great um, on everybody's Mark IV then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. And uh, actually, I think it is, I think BMW was the first company to do it where you can have a, a removable turbofan. Um, and obviously that kind of goes down in history as being like one of the wheels that purists and guys who collect the cars don't actually enjoy that much just because the wheels look like a big white wall tire because the lip of the wheel is so thick. Um, a lot of people put M pars on them or something like that, but, sure. um, you can find M system turbo fans floating around everywhere. And BMW, when they first made those, by the way, claimed that you got 25% cooler brakes with the system, which is, uh, you know, when you're driving between stoplights, probably not true, but when you're crawling <laughs> around the Nürburgring, uh, maybe, you know, I can see that. So tell us about this new resin printer you've got and how it's changing what you do. Um, the re- so the resin printing. So I'm sure that there's some people on this podcast who have heard of um, different types of printers before, but I also want to you know speak to those who are not familiar with 3D printing. And uh, so there's FDM printing, which is um, basically just classic, like I said, hot glue gun on some stepper motors. Um, you're shooting plastic. And then there's SLA, which is um, sintering material. So what that does is it shines a laser at a set of mirrors and then there's some motors that move the mirrors around, and that draws the laser up against a pane of glass. And right above the pane of glass, you have a big vat of UV curable resin. It's usually urethane acrylate. Um, and when the light, when the laser hits the urethane, it hardens it, um, and it hardens it just enough to be able to draw shapes in 3D. So then you can just move the glass around or move the platform that the UV is being diffused on. And then you can start making your part. Um, and that's SLA. What I'm trying to move towards is called DLP. And that's direct light projection printing. I believe it's direct light projection. That's what the acronym means. And basically, it's the same concept of curing uh, UV resin uh, with like a you know UV purple light. But instead of drawing the shape of the laser, it actually uses an LCD screen. And for those who aren't familiar with how LCD screens work, basically white just means letting light through. And black just means being opaque. So if the screen shows, let's let's say, um, the shape of the silhouette of a 911, if it shows that in white and you put a UV light underneath it, you're going to end up with the silhouette of a 911 in the UV solution. So that's basically how DLP printers work. They just keep doing layers and layers like that, and they move the print bed up ever so slightly so the part is printed upside down. But they move the print bed up ever so slightly um, – to uh, just step through the layers, and then you end up with your 3D part. I looked so, at a video. You sent me a video of this working, and it looks like the the whatever it is is just being pulled out of liquid. Mm-hmm. It just it's yeah. like it just it was submerged, and it just gets pulled out. Is what it kind of looks it's, like. Uh, it's pretty much. I, I personally think it's it's the future of printing, just because um, the whole idea of 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 3D printers really is uh, aimed at this idea of voxels, and voxels are 3D printer or sorry 3D pixels. Um, if you've ever seen like the original 1982 Tron, um, in the very end of the movie where, uh, Kevin Flynn gets like re-digitized into the real world and the robot like blasts a bunch of big pixels across the screen. And then you see like bits of Kevin come out. That is, uh, that's pretty much a voxel right there. It's just a 3d pixel. And, and, and like Minecraft uh, too, right? 
Right. Yeah, pretty much. And DLP printers are basically uh, using voxels in the real, real world, pretty much. Uh, so it, it, it's really wild to watch. But Is there a size uh, limitation works- to that? Yeah. So one of the biggest problems with it uh, is suction. Um, so when you're pulling, when you, you know, cure all of that resin, it's going to be stuck to your plate of glass or your plastic film or whatever you're using. And the build platform has to suck the part up off of that glass um, to go do the next layer, to let resin go underneath the part again and then center more resin. Um, and on DLP printers, you can get to the point where you have so much suction that it's actually becoming difficult to consistently pull the part back off the sheet. Um, so there is kind of a typical size limitation. You can actually buy DLP printers pretty cheap off of Amazon, um, but they're usually only about like, you know, 3.8 by 5 by 6 inch build volumes. It's, it's pretty minimal. And a lot of that you can't actually use the entirety of because you'll run into print errors. Um, but so it's, it's usually quite small. Um, and it's usually just for little trinkets and stuff like that. Are any manufacturers using this type of technology yet officially, this DLP stuff? Um, I don't really know how many people are using it like in house. I know that SLA printers the, with the laser have been really commonly used right. um, in manufacturing. And actually, for those viewers who, or for those listeners who um, follow Stefan Papadakis and his. Uh, drift setup, drift build that he's doing uh, this year with the new Supra. Um, they just had Mountune 3D print out of aluminum um, their whole intake manifold. Uh, they did the same process as SLA, but instead it uses a basically a laser that can weld and then aluminum powder. So it still just shines the laser onto uh, basically a sheet, but the sheet is powdered aluminum and then it just melts the laser together. So Centering with a laser is really, really common in the industry right now, but one of the biggest problems with it is that it's extremely cost prohibitive. Like I remember when we used to center nylon powder at 3D Printing Ally, a box of of powder back then was probably like 1600 bucks, and that could maybe print you like, you know, a couple set of prototype shoes. And that's about it. Well, what, uh, why don't the, you just get like this big piece of aluminum and a grinder and right. then just sit in a sealed room and grind right. the whole block away and then vacuum it up and then you've got your product. It'd be faster than a lot of printers. <laughs> um, what other projects are you working on besides the turbo fans? You mentioned shift knobs. What else have you, I mean, you've been working on this adjustable wing. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? This thing sounds cool. Yeah, this is rad. Yeah, yeah. the uh, the wing is quite the project right now. I feel like it's consuming my life at points. But uh, but. Basically, I've been experimenting and learning about uh, aerodynamics over the past few months. Um, I used to be a mechanical engineering student at MSW. I switched to uh, user experience design, with it, which I think Jake is quite familiar with. Um, but it's basically programming and psychology combined and marketing and stuff like that. I'm technically uh, a user interface designer. Close enough. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually pretty much the like right on the verge of between front end and back end of UX, which is super cool. Um, but, uh, but my time as an engineering student really opened my eyes to all of the resources that I have around me and the awesome, intelligent people that I have around me to learn from. Um, and while I am not a mechanical engineering student, I've talked to people like Josh Walling, um, and my roommate to try to learn more about aerodynamics and how to compute, um, uh, flow diagrams and stuff like that for making my own wing profiles. And so after a while, I settled on a Formula Mazda wing design. Um, and now, just to we, clarify, we're talking about a wing that's going on the back of your M coupe on the hatch, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right above. Right. And uh, so uh, 
I got this Formula Mazda wing design. There's a really good article on it on how it works and what speeds it works at. Um, I scaled it up a bit and then added some more links to it, and then we did CFD analysis on it. Um, what is that? What do you mean by that? What's what is uh, CFD is computational uh, fluid dynamics, I believe, but it's a study of how fluid moves around a shape. So it'll okay. tell you things like your drag, um, your, your yeah, your coefficient of drag, and then it'll also show you like where you have low pressure zones, where you have high pressure zones, where you might be able to improve your shape. Um, like I know my roommate's one of his current labs was how to make the shape with the most lift and the most drag, and he basically made like the ugliest looking little like cross shape and it they put it in the wind tunnel and apparently it like burst into a million pieces because it was <laughs> <laughs> it had so much drag but uh but yeah so we did cfd analysis on it um or i did cfd analysis on it and then i moved into okay well you know i'm not obviously racing in some kind of like spec or anything like that i'm just building this for fun so what can i learn from this project and what i wanted to know was absolutely everything i could so i decided to throw as many sensors as I could at how this wing is designed and um, really see what I could do with software engineering um, on the wing. So that includes like the wing, the whole wing is actually mounted or will be mounted on two um, like food industrial waste scale load cells. Um, and those allow me to measure the real time downforce happening on the wing. The wing is designed before any of you engineers call me out on it. The wing is designed so that the um, motion component and the load cell are being loaded differently. So they're not one and the same, which means that if you break the wing at full stall, um, it's not just putting pressure on the motion components. It's actually still loading up the load cells. That way you can still measure your downforce, even though the wing is turning, um, which that was a nightmare to figure out. But, so what you're uh, basically trying to do is you have this load cell that's measuring the the pressure that the, the air is putting on the wing, and you're going to be able right. to adjust it on the fly or have it auto-adjust using that sensor, right? Exactly. So I've been trying to learn more about um, AI and how to apply um, neural networks and stuff like that. And I'm not really a big fan of just calling everything like, you know, AI, because it's mostly still algorithms. But uh, there's a small enough form factor microcontroller that I can use that has an ARM Cortex on board, which is like a pretty common phone processor. Um, And it's powerful enough to be able to handle uh, some several neural networks that could be set up to control the wing, um, figuring out its own downforce, basically. So, uh, like on race cars, you'll see uh, stop points. So, you know, maybe wing is at setting two or setting three. In my case, I just want to have a dial on the steering wheel that has my target downforce, um, and then the wing can figure everything else out. So the wing will have an airspeed sensor, an air temp sensor. Therefore, it'll be able to understand the density of the air. It'll have um, the downforce data, obviously, as well as, um, a gyroscope and an accelerometer. So what about like, yeah, like, so like a yaw sensor is, is that going to exist in the middle of the car or anything? So you, so it can give you more uh, or less downforce if it senses the car, the rear end of the car coming out rotate. Yeah. So, uh, basically I'll get into the motion sensors in a minute, but the, uh, the conditionals of being able to use the sensors, uh, with regard to like air temp and stuff like that is let's say you can put the wing at, um, setting two for aggressiveness and on a hot day when the air is less dense it will accommodate for that and maybe maybe the wing will be at a slightly lower stall angle or a slightly hot, higher stall angle depending on what's flowing over the car um, and then on like a colder day when the air is more dense it'll be able to be at a higher or a lower stall angle um, 
in order to uh, to compensate for that. So this sounds like this is so crazy, this, Alex. This <laughs> sounds like something that would be totally banned in Formula One. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's active yeah, arrow. Kind of you idea. are making that's your kind own of the active idea. arrow. Yeah. So so back to what you guys wanted to know about with the with the uh, motion sensor. I was going to ask you about um, pitch too, but if you're pitching in your car, you're in deep shit anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but the uh, the conventional way to measure downforce on cars is just to do it off of the springs. So, like, a really uh, a Toyota uh, race engineer and aerodynamic, he, it's actually kind of a sad career because he was, like, a race engineer, and he just worked on, like, Eurises and stuff and aerodynamics for those. But he was saying, he wrote a great article on grassroots motor, motorsports that talked about how if you put a zip tie on your struts um, and you push the zip tie up against the, uh, I think it's the top of the strut, or no, the sorry, the shock body, and then you yeah. go for a drive, um, and then you, you know, on a really level road, and you slowly come to a stop, you can get out and measure the zip ties, and then that tells you how much downforce is on your car um, if you slowly accelerate and slowly decelerate. That's well, interesting. that setup is really cool because you can use, um, like, you know, headlight-level sensors, basically, to tell how much downforce your whole car has. So, like, if you're, you know, your, your microcontroller understands the car's at 150 miles an hour, and the suspension is a half inch lower than normally is, and you have 500 pound per inch springs, you know, 250 pounds times four is a thousand. You're making a thousand pounds of downforce at 150 miles an hour. Um, if you want to do that with just the wing, it becomes a little bit more tricky because there's, there's a lot of other factors involved. So my goal is to have the wing be able to understand what's going on with the car in terms of integrating those sensors into the suspension, but also make it really safe. So, like, for example, there's some active arrow on, like, Miatas and stuff in 24 Hours of Lemons, but, um, you know, not super high-speed stuff. But if you take that active arrow idea, the DIY, you know, headlight motors, just have it flip up and down and stuff like that, if you take that and apply it to a car that has some more serious speed, you're going to end up with situations where, like, let's say you're coming into a corner, you have the wing flip up, there's, you know, 300 pounds of force that's uh, breaking the car on the rear axle because of the wing. If that wing suddenly pitches back down and goes level, you just taken off 300 pounds from the rear. Yeah, you axle. just unsprung the and, hell out of the rear of the car. Right, you just unsprung the hell out of the rear car, and when those when that suspension comes back up and it stops coming back up, you're going to bring the tires up with it, and then you could you know snap over steer. So there's or lose grip rather, and that happens at the front of the car too. Um, but being able to control when things like that happen intelligently is uh, something I really want to focus on in software. So it'd be really cool if the wing could know, hey, uh, it seems like we just got off power and we're coming into a turn. Um, apply the air brake gradually. Hey, it seems like we're coming out of the braking zone and going into mid-corner. Come off the air brake gradually. Hey, it seems like we're full throttle coming out of a turn let off the air brake. So it, it has to Are you going to be able to, to have this go off, off of the, the amount of brake modulation you're doing? If your braking input is X, then do this. If it's not this, maybe you don't need to be as aggressive with it. Is that a possibility? Yeah, that's actually, it's funny you say that because I'm, I literally have a flow chart in Google Drive right now um, on how that system is going to work. Because if you did it off of the G-forces that the car is experiencing, you would be getting real-time information because, you know, as soon as you stand on your brakes, you're getting g's going backwards um but at the same time your inputs are a lot different than what the chassis is doing already so i'm trying to figure out how to measure that 
and what's the best way to do it. I'll probably end up having both the chassis um, and the pedal integration, uh, but it's a little bit tricky trying to make a sensor that can repeatedly take hard stomping of the brake pedal um, reliably because if you, you know, you don't want anything to fail. So, uh, but yeah, that's been a that's been a really tricky question to answer. I'm glad you asked it because it's something I'm working on right now. How does this compare to something that uh, like a Bugatti or a McLaren? Some of their active aero that they that they're doing are they doing this a similar thing? Do you know anything about what they've done that you're applying to what you're up to? Um, there's all works. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering uh, but, what 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 inspiration you can yeah. take from what they've done. So the biggest thing that uh, I've been able to learn from them and learn from what other people have told me who, uh, like I've spoken to one of my friends, uh, is actually, I probably shouldn't name what he's working on, but one of my friends is an engineer at a car company and he was working on a, a system like this and he reached out to me and he was like, hey man, um, I don't think your system's going to be fast enough. And I was like, what do you mean? Like it goes up in like a half a second. And I was like, and then he was like, that's not fast enough. And then I was watching videos of like, you know, the McLaren P1 and the Ford GT. And I was like, wow, their systems are really, really fast. Well, think about if you're going 150 miles an hour, how far do you travel on the track in half a second? Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. It's a pretty significant distance. And how much have you already decelerated? Um, So I've been really focused on trying to make the wing fast um, and also trying to make it durable because having, you know, debris hit your wing or chunks of tire hit your wing or having 300 pounds on it is not uncommon. Um, and seeing how they've reinforced wings on like the P1 and stuff like that is really interesting. And I keep, I keep thinking back to one moment we had on our Texas trip, um, where we were filming some cars and we touched the wing on a GT2 RS and it was like, it felt hollow. Like it, it felt like it was made out of like nothing. And, uh, and I've been thinking about that and thinking about how I can lighten my wing. And it's so hard to do that on a budget. It's so difficult. Um, and so 3D printing the whole wing was kind of the original idea. But now it's looking more like I'll probably be 3D printing a mold um, for a carbon layup to, you know, make the wing out of. Thankfully, where I work is pretty conducive to doing that, um, being at a composites company. But, uh, yeah, trying to make it lightweight and really fast is definitely what I've learned from from automakers. Well, that's... Awesome. I'm really looking forward to that project coming to fruition. It seems like this is kind of like yeah, the natural too. evolution of, you know, the air ride stuff that you're working on. This That was kind of far more simple than this. This is kind of the natural um, evolution on that. Yeah, but, and there's there's a couple other parts to it that'll, that'll I think, you know, interest people. Like, there's going to be some stepper motors that control the uh, brake ducts on the car, so that that way, if the brakes are getting too cool, um, it'll actually start to have the brake duct, so that way there isn't too much air coming in. Um, that's similar to how they do it on GT3 cars, but those are manual. Um, but there's no real reason I'm doing any of this. It's all just have fun. And <laughs> well, experience. I think in the end here, you're going to have somebody knocking on your door. That's going to, that'll change your life. I think that's, inevitable. I do have one right. question, Alex. So are you going to be doing any actual on track testing once you have these systems up and running? So my whole goal with the car is to drive the absolute hell out of it. Um, and I don't have any plans on taking it to any shows. Um, or just street driving it. Like the only purpose for the car is to be on track. So uh, I'm really, really tired of seeing people build some crazy cars and then not have the guts to take them on track. And a lot of the reason for that is because, you know, if you crash in, you know, think of a car that's bespoke that was made for a SEMA show or PRI show or something like that. If you crash in that, there's no buying another part. 
you know, a lot of that stuff is one off and most of the guys who made it don't have time to make it regularly. Whereas a lot of the parts on my car, actually all of the parts I've made for my car are 3d printed or designed in CAD, um, to be laser cut. And I can just make more of them. Um, mm. I could literally have the coupe light on fire today. Um, and That's I could not get carried away. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I could buy, I could buy another, I could buy another coupe and in like, you know, one week I could reprint all the parts that I've ever made for the coop and have them all again. So the whole idea with this is to have this kind of iterative testing environment um, and just keep rolling with the rolling with the punches and design new stuff. But yes, have the car on track always. And you mentioned the other day when we were talking about you, th- you thought that stance was dead and you, you yeah. just commented that, that it's, it's kind of over and the reason is that it's too easy. And you think people are going to be going back to, you know, race and track fitment and stuff like that for the street. Why do you think stance right. is dead and things are going to move back to that? So I, I guess I don't think stance necessarily is, is all that dead. I do think air ride is pretty much dead at this point. Um, well, stance will biggest, never die. Stance is just kind of a like a general term for, you know, what your car looks like. I just right. mean like that air ride low, tucking lip in the fender type of thing. Right. Well, pretty much, I mean, when you think about it, the whole reason why turbofans, you know, are, are present on road cars, the whole reason why uh, your 190E is slammed or, you know, my coupe is slammed or my M3 was slammed is because of DTM, Group 5, um, and Group C and, you know, and IMSA races. That's all, that's the only reason why, like, that's why E36s look so slammed because touring cars were absolutely slammed. Um, and, I think that that stance is still going to stay around. That's what we've been seeing over the past like 10 years, that sort of track feminine, um, purposeful, but not purposeful because it's on the street. Look, however, the whole idea of like just trying to get as low as physically possible with bags and big show wheels and stuff like that, all of that was really cool in the nineties. It was really cool in the early two thousands, but it was made so popular and so lucrative for companies to, you know, chase the accessibility of with airlift making bags and rotiform and MHT making so many cool wheels. And even companies like 1552 having all their crazy cast line wheels, it's so easy and it's so plentiful that, um, frankly, it's become a fad and we saw it over the past few SEMAs. And I think it's kind of slowly dying out. Um, I'm not sure we're going to see a whole lot of, you know, phone dial rotiforms on Uricons in the future. Uh, that era on bags, you know, that era is kind of being done with. Um, I think that seeing how many, and obviously everyone around you is kind of the summation of who you are, but seeing everyone around me go to track equipment from having stance cars and just loving to drive their cars because we realize how much of a dying experience it is to just be able to go on track and do whatever you want. You know, someday that might not be as readily available as it is now. Um, I think a lot of us are starting to realize how important it is and stray away from just ruining these cars, um, you know, having them just sit there and be low and we want to really drive these things. Uh, and that, I think that's kind of a motion that is happening throughout the car community right now. Well, I think uh, one can only hope that at some point people decide they want to drive rather than show. You know, shows were always great. I always right. enjoyed going, but it was always you would go to just to hang out with people. You wouldn't really, for me, it was never it was never necessarily about the cars. It was always about getting there and then hanging out. Um, yeah. It's almost never about the cars. Right. Really. It's almost always about the connections and the people. I mean, that's why like, you know, my neighbor, when I was a kid 
had this giant plot of land that he went and did like World War II reenactments on. And I was thinking in my head, like, how lame is it that you like go do that? And now that I'm older, I realize like, that's so cool that you get to go hang out with friends and do that. Yeah, exactly. So cool. (laughs) Well, Alex, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about all your cool projects and uh, we'll have you get on again once you finish or it's probably never be finished. You know, that's just how things evolve and go. But once you finish your wing... I honestly hope it's never finished because I love following along and watching the progress. Yeah, it's cool to watch all your your stuff on your Instagram. Where can people find out about uh, more about what you're doing? Um, you can find me on Instagram at Gallivantry, which is spelled uh, not like lavatory. It's spelled uh, <laughs> G-A-L-A-V-A-N-T-O-R-Y. Um, you can also find me at airworks.us. Um, that's both the website link and the Instagram name, um, airworks.us, spelled with an E on works. Um, and uh, and just, you know, follow along with the crazy shit that's going on. Uh, I try to be, you know, super, super humble with all this and give people whatever advice I can. So if anyone is trying to do their own project uh, similar to this, I'd love to help out. There's currently a fellow in... If I can give a shout out on Overcrest, sure. Um, there's a guy on uh, in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, he goes by the name of Tim Hicks, and he works for, um, I guess, his own body shop called Baltimore Body Shop. But he's he has his own company called Industry Garage, and him and I have been collaborating on a lot of parts. He has an entirely carbon fiber 240Z that weighs 1,750 pounds and Jesus. it's going to make 500 horsepower. There's <laughs> an, a titanium exhaust that weighs five pounds from the header flange to the tip. That thing, um, that thing needs but, some da- some some active arrow to keep it on the ground. No kidding. Yeah. So him and I are going to be working together in a lot of future projects. So if you want to see more stuff um, like composite work and the future of how 3D printing is going to affect the aftermarket with the stuff we kind of do, definitely give him a follow because he'll be running a lot of parts that we've produced together. So Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on and uh, I'm sure I'll talk to you Thanks later so this much. evening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I appreciate right. being on the show. Thanks yeah. so much. Take care of yourself, buddy. Right. You too. Bye. I love Alex and <laughs> I just, it's, he's always going, right? He says right. He, he doesn't like to be bored, right? I and like that philosophy because kind of, I find myself being bored a lot and it is a decision. It's a mindset. It is. I remember the other day I was like, I'm bored. I don't have anything to do. And I just went out and looked at the garage and, <laughs> and you're like, oh, wait, I was like, wait a second. I've got this car to finish. I need to do the springs in the, in the 190 again. There's not a flat surface anywhere available in the entire garage. <laughs> it is wildly out of control. So I cleaned the garage and did a few things and then went back to being lazy shortly thereafter. After. But uh, it's it's youth and exuberance. I envy it. It is it is great to well, see that him. and the skill and just I guess determination that Alex has to to learn these things and build these things. Yeah, that's crazy. Talking about how he's just going to make his own active arrow and his own algorithms and everything else to to factor all that. Phenomenal. In. I've I've been talking about Alex to people for a really long time. He is he's an incredibly incredibly gifted individual, and I'm really excited to see where his life goes and where he ends up. And uh, hopefully he doesn't forget about us all when he's famous. So <laughs> I, I appreciate him coming on. Um, I hope everybody's doing all right. Make sure you take care of yourself. Take care of others. Uh, spread the word on the podcast. Leave us a five-star review if you could. Subscribe if you don't already. And uh, let all your friends know how awesome we are and how much you love us. We'd really appreciate it. <laughs> With that, we'll see you next week. Take Bye-bye. care. Take care.